Section six of the Convivio. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mary J. The Convivio by Dante Alighieri. Translated by Philip H. Wicksteed. Section six. Treatise two. Chapters seven through twelve. Chapter seven. According as was said above in the third chapter of this treatise, Rightly to understand the first part of the ode before us, it was needful to discourse of those heavens, and of their movers. And discoursed it hath been in the three preceding chapters. I say then to those whom I have shown to be the movers of the heaven of Venus, ye who by understanding, to wit with intellect alone, as said above, move the third heaven, hearken to the discourse. And I say not, hearken, as though they hear any sound, for they have not sense, but I say hearken to wit, that hearing which they have, which is understanding by the intellect. I say, hearken to the discourse which is in my heart, to wit inside of me, for it hath not yet appeared without. Be it known that in all this ode, according to one sense and the other, the heart is to be taken as the secret recess within, and not as any other special part of the soul or of the body. When I have called them to hearken to that which I would say, I assign two reasons I should fitly speak to them. The one is the strangeness of my state, which, since it hath not been experienced by other men, might not be so well understood by them as by those beings who understand their own effects in their operation. And this reason I hint at when I say, for I may not tell it to any other, so strange it seemeth me. The other reason is that when a man receiveth a benefit or a hurt, he should rehearse it to him who doth it to him, if he may, ere he rehearse it to another. So that if it be a benefit, he who receiveth it may show himself grateful towards the benefactor, and if it be a hurt, he may lead the doer by his gentle words to salutary compassion. In this reason I hint at, when I say, "'Tis the heaven which followeth your worth, gentle creatures that ye be, that draweth me into the state wherein I find me. That is to say, your operation, to wit, your circulation. Is it that has drawn me into my present state? Wherefore I conclude, and say, that my speech ought to be to them, as was declared above, and this I say here." wherefore the discourse of the life which I endure me seems were worthily directed unto you. And after assigning these reasons I pray them to give heed when I say, Therefore I pray that ye give me heed anented. But inasmuch as in every manner of discourse the speaker should be chiefly intent on persuasion, to wit, on the propitiating those who hear him, which is the beginning of all other persuasions, as the rhetoricians know, and since the most potent persuasion to render the hearer attentive is the promise to tell novel and imposing things, I add this persuasion, or propitiation, to the prayers which I have made for a hearing, announcing to them my intention, which is to relate strange things to them, to wit, the strife which there is in my mind, and great things, to wit, the worth of their star. And this I say in these last words of the first part. I will tell the wondrous story of my heart, how the sad soul waileth in it, and how a spirit discurseth counter to her, that cometh upon the rays of your star. And for the full understanding of these words I say that this spirit is not else than a frequent thinking upon and commending and propitiating of this new lady, and this soul is not else than another thought, accompanied by assent, which, repelling the former, commends and propitiates the memory of Beatrice in glory. But inasmuch as the final verdict of the mind, that is, its assent, was still retained by that thought which supported the memory, I call it the soul, and the other a spirit. Just as when we speak of the city we are wont to mean those who are in possession of it, not those who are attacking it, albeit the one and the other be citizens. 
I say, then, that this spirit comes upon the rays of the star, because you are to know that the rays of each heaven are the path whereby their virtue descends upon things that are here below, and inasmuch as rays are no other than the shining which cometh from the source of the light through the air even to the thing enlightened, and the light is only in that part where the star is, because the rest of the heaven is diaphanous, that is, transparent, I say not that this spirit, to wit, this thought, cometh from their heaven in its totality, but from their star, which star, by reason of the nobility in them who move it, is of so great virtue that it has extreme power upon our souls and upon other affairs of ours, notwithstanding that it be distant, when nighest to us, one hundred and sixty-seven times as far as it is to the middle of the earth, which is a space of three thousand two hundred and fifty miles. And this is the literal exposition of the first part of the Ode. CHAPTER Eight. A sufficient understanding may be had by the above words of the literal meaning of the first part, wherefore attention is to be turned to the second, wherein is declared what I experienced within in the matter of this conflict. And this part hath two divisions, for in the first, to wit, in the first verse, I tell the quality of these conflicting thoughts according to their root, which was within me. Then I tell that which was urged by the one and the other conflicting thought, and so first that which the losing side urged. And this is in the verse, which is the second of this part, and the third of the ode. To make evident, then, the meaning of the first division, be it known that things should be named from the distinguishing nobility of their form, as man from reason, and not from sense, nor from aught else that is less noble. Hence, when we say that a man is living, it should be understood that the man hath the use of his reason, which is his special life, and is the actualizing of his most noble part. And therefore he who severs himself from reason, and hath only use of his sensitive part, doth not live as a man, but liveth as a beast, as saith that most excellent Boethius, he liveth as an ass. Rightly, as I maintain, because thought is the proper act of the reason, since beasts think not, because they have not reason. And I affirm this, not only of the lesser beasts, but of those who have the semblance of man and the spirit of sheep, or some other detestable beast. I say, then, that the life of my heart, that is, my inner life, was wont to be a sweet thought. Sweet is the same as suasive, that is, ingratiated, dulcet, pleasing, delightsome. Namely, that thought which often went to the sire of them to whom I speak, which is God, that is to say that I, in thought, contemplated the kingdom of the blessed. And straightway I declare the final cause why I rose up there in my thought, when I say, Where it beheld a lady in glory, to give to understand that I was certain, as I am by her gracious revelation, that she was in heaven. Wherefore, many a time, pondering on her as deeply as I might, I went thither as though rapt. Then following on I tell the effect of this thought, to give to understand its sweetness, which was so great that it made me long for death, to go thither where it went, and this, I say here, of whom it discoursed to me so sweetly, that my soul said ever, Fain would I go thither. And this is the root of one of the conflicting sides in me. And you are to know that I call it a thought, and not the soul which rose to look upon this one in bliss, because it was the special thought addressed to this act. Soul, as was said in the preceding chapter, means thought in general with assent. Then, when I say, Now one appears who putteth him to flight, I tell of the root of the other conflicting side, saying that even as this thought, spoken of above, was wont to be my life, so another appeareth which maketh it cease. I say putteth him to flight, to show that this is an adversary, for naturally one adversary flees the other, and the one that flees shows that it is by defect of valour that it flees. And I say that this thought, which newly appears, has power to lay hold of me, and to conquer the whole soul, saying that it so lords it that the heart, that is my inward self, trembles, and it is revealed without, 
by a certain changed semblance. Following on, I show the power of this new thought by its effect, saying that it maketh me gaze upon a lady, and saith flattering words to me, that it discurseth before my eyes of my intellectual affection, the better to draw me over, promising me that the sight of her eyes is its wheel. And the better to gain this credence with the experienced soul, it says that the eyes of this lady are not to be looked upon by any who fears anguish of sighs. And this is a fine figure of rhetoric, when there is the outward appearance of depreciating a thing, and the inward reality of embellishing it. This new thought of love could not better draw my mind to consent than by so deeply discursing of the virtue of that lady's eyes. CHAPTER Nine. Now that it has been shown how and why love was born, and the conflict which distracted me, it is meet that we proceed to unveil the meaning of that part wherein diverse thoughts fight within me. I say that it is meet first to speak on the side of the soul, that is to say, the ancient thought, and then of the other. For this reason, that that upon which the speaker doth purpose to lay chiefest stress should ever be reserved for the last, because that which is last said doth most abide in the mind of the hearer. Wherefore, since it is my purpose to speak and to discourse more fully of that which the work of those beings whom I address makes than of that which it unmakes, it was reasonable first to speak and discourse of the condition of that side which was being destroyed, and then of that side which was being produced. But here arises a difficulty which is not to be passed over without explanation. Since love is the effect of these intelligences whom I am addressing, and the former thought was love as much as the latter, someone may ask why their power destroys the one and produces the other whereas it should rather preserve than destroy the former, for the reason that every cause loves its effect, and loving it preserves it. To this question the answer may easily be given, to wit that their effect is indeed love, as hath been said, and inasmuch as they cannot preserve it save in those objects which are subject to their circulation, they change it from that region which is outside their power to that which is within it, that is to say, from the soul which has departed from this life to the soul which is yet in it, just as human nature transfers its preservation of the human form from father to son, because it may not perpetually preserve its effect in the father himself. I say its effect inasmuch as the soul united with the body is in truth its effect, for the soul which is parted endureth perpetually in a nature more than human. And so is the problem solved. But inasmuch as the immortality of the soul has here been touched upon, I will make a digression. I will make a digression, discursing thereof, for in such discourse will be a fair ending of my speech concerning that living Beatrice, in bliss, of whom I propose to speak no further in this book. And by way of preface I say that of all stupidities that is the most foolish, the basest, and the most pernicious, which believes that after this life there is no other. For if we turn over all the scriptures both of the philosophers and of the other sage writers, all agree in this that within us there is a certain part that endures. And this we see in the earnest contention of Aristotle, in that of the soul, this the earnest contention of all the Stoics, this the contention of Tully, especially in that booklet of old age. This we see in the contention of every poet who has spoken according to the faith of the Gentiles, this the contention of every religion, Jews, Saracens, and Tartars, and all others who live according to any law, so that if all of them were deceived, there would follow an impossibility which it would be horrible even to handle. Everyone is assured that human nature is the most perfect of all other natures here below, and this is denied of none. And Aristotle avereth it when he saith in the twelfth of the animals that man is the most perfect of all the animals, whence inasmuch as many living creatures are entirely mortal, as are the brute beasts, and all are, so long as they live, without this hope to wit of another life. If our hope were vain, the flaw in us would be greater than in any other animal, because there have been many ere now who have surrendered this life for the sake of that and so it would follow that the most perfect animal, to wit, man, 
was the most imperfect, which is impossible. In that part, to wit the reason, which is his chief perfection, would be the cause to him of having this greater flaw, which seemeth a strange thing indeed to have Further, it would follow that nature had set this hope in the human mind in opposition to herself, since we have said that many have hastened to the death of the body, for to live in the other life, and this is also impossible. Further, we witness unbroken experience of our immortality in the divinations of our dreams, which might not be if there were not some immortal part in us, inasmuch as the reveller, whether corporeal or incorporeal, must needs be immortal if we think it out subtly. And I say, whether corporeal or incorporeal, because of the diversity of opinion which I find in this matter, and that which is set in motion or informed by an immediate informer must stand in some ratio to the informer, and between the mortal and the immortal there is no ratio. And further we are assured of it by the most truthful teaching of Christ, which is the way, the truth, and the light, the way because in it we advance unimpeded to the blessedness of this very immortality, the truth because it suffereth no error, the light because it lighteth us in the darkness of earthly ignorance. This teaching, I say, assureth us above all other reasons, because he hath given it to us who seeth and measureth our immortality, the which we ourselves may not perfectly see, so long as our immortal part is mingled with our mortal part. But by faith we see it perfectly, and by reason we see it with a shadow of obscurity, which cometh about because of the mingling of the mortal with the immortal. In this should be the most potent argument that both the two exist in us. And so I believe, so aver, that I am assured of the passage after this life to another better life, where this lady liveth in glory, of whom my soul was enamoured when I strove in such fashion as shall be told in the following chapter. CHAPTER Ten. Returning to the subject, I say that in this verse which begins, Findeth such an adversary as destroyeth him, I intend to reveal what my soul discoursed within me, that is to say, the discourse of the ancient thought in opposition to the new. And first I briefly reveal the cause of her woeful speech when I say, Findeth such an adversary as destroyeth him, the humble thought that is wont to discourse to me of an angel who is crowned in heaven. This is that special thought of which it is said above that it was wont to be the life of the grieving heart. Then, when I say, The soul wails, so doth she still grieve thereat. I show that my soul is still on its side, and speaks with sadness, and I say that she speaks words of lamentation, as though amazed at the sudden change, saying, O wretched me, how fleeth that tender one who hath consoled me! She may rightly say, consoled, for in her great loss this thought, which would ascend to heaven, had given her great consolation. Then afterwards, in her excuse, I say that all my thought, to wit, my soul, of whom I use the phrase, this afflicted one, turns upon the eyes and denounces them, and this is manifested here. Of my eyes this afflicted one exclaimeth. And I tell how she says three things of them, and against them. The first is that she curses the hour when this lady looked upon them. And here, be it known, that though many things may pass into the eye at the same time, yet the one which comes along the straight line into the centre of the pupil is the only one that is really and truly seen, and that stamps itself upon the imagination. And this is because the nerve along which the visual spirit runs faces in this direction, and therefore one eye cannot really look upon another without being seen by it. For just as the one which looks receives the form in the pupil along the straight line, so along that same straight line its form proceeds into the one whereon it is looking." And many times it is in thus directing the straight line that his bow is discharged against whom all arms are light. Wherefore, when I say that, such lady looketh upon them, it is as much as to say that her eyes and mine looked upon one another. The second thing that she saith is that she rebukes their disobedience, when she saith, And wherefore did they not believe me concerning her? Then she proceeds to the third thing, and says that the reproach is not hers, as though she had not foreseen, but theirs, in that they did not obey 
Wherefore she says that from time to time, discursing of this lady, she said, in her eyes must needs reside a power over me, were the path of access open to it. In this she saith here, I ever said, verily in her eyes must he needs stand who slays my peers. And in truth we are to believe that my soul recognized its own disposition, prone to receive the efficacy of this lady, and therefore feared her, for the efficacy of the agent is apprehended in the duly disposed patient, as saith the philosopher in the second, of the soul. And therefore, if wax had the spirit of fear, it would more greatly dread coming into the ray of sun than would a stone, because its disposition receiveth it in more potent operation. Finally, the soul makes manifest in her discourse that their presumption was perilous, when she saith, In my perceiving it avoided me not against their gazing upon such a one, that I am slain thereby. She means, from looking there upon him of whom she has before said, that he slays my peers, and so she ends her words, to which the new thought answers as shall be set forth in the following chapter. CHAPTER Eleven. The meaning has been expounded of that part wherein the soul speaks, to wit the ancient thought, which was being destroyed, and now in sequence the meaning should be explained of the part wherein the new and adverse thought speaks. And this part is all contained in the verse which begins, Thou art not slain, which part, that it may be rightly understood, is to be divided into two, for in the first part, which begins, Thou art not slain, and the rest, he proceeds to say, attaching himself to her two final words, It is not true that thou art slain, but the reason that it seemeth thee that thou art slain is a certain dismay wherein thou art basely fallen, because of the lady who hath appeared to thee. And here be it noted that, as Boethius saith in his consolation, no sudden change of things cometh to pass without some certain running asunder of the mind. And this is the meaning of the reproof made by that thought, and he is called a little spirit of love to give to understand that my assent was swaying towards him. And thus what follows may be better understood, and his victory recognized, since he says already, O soul of ours, making himself her familiar. Then, as was said, he gives command as to what this soul that he reproves is to do to come to this lady, and he thus discurses to her, See how tender she is, and humble. Now these are two things which are the proper remedy for fear, whereby the soul was seen to be impassioned, and especially when united, they beget good hope concerning a person, and chiefly tenderness, which maketh every other excellence glow with its light. Wherefore Virgil, speaking of Aeneas, calls him tender as his greatest praise. And tenderness is not what the common herd suppose it to be, namely, grieving at another's woe, which is rather a special effect of it which is called pity, and is an emotion. But tenderness is not an emotion, but rather a noble disposition of mind, ready to receive love, pity, and other charitous emotions. Then he saith, see also how, sage and courteous in her greatness she is. Here he mentions three things, which, amongst things which we have the power to acquire, most chiefly make a person pleasing. He says, sage. Now, what is more beautiful in a woman than to be wise? He says, courteous. Nothing is more becoming in a woman than courtesy. And let not the wretched vulgar be deceived as to this word also, thinking that courtesy is no other than open-handedness, for open-handedness is a special form of courtesy, and not courtesy in general. Courtesy and honor are all one, and because in courts of old time virtuous and fair manners were in use, as now the contrary, this word was derived from courts, and courtesy was as much as to say, after the usage of courts. Which word, if it were now taken from courts, especially of Italy, would mean not else than baseness. He says, in her greatness, Temporal greatness, which is here intended, is then most comely when accompanied by the two aforesaid excellencies, because it is the light which brings out with clearness the good in a person and its opposite. And how much wisdom and how much virtuous disposition remains concealed by not having this light, 
and how great madness and how great vices are exposed to view by having this light better were it for the wretched magnates mad foolish and vicious to be in base estate for so neither in the world nor after their lives end would they be infamous truly it is for them that solomon saith in ecclesiastes another most grievous infirmity have i seen beneath the sun to wit riches kept to the hurt of their master then in sequence he lays it upon her to wit upon my soul that she is henceforth to call her her lady promising her that therefrom she will have much solace when she shall be aware of her graces and this he saith here for if thou deceive not thyself thou shalt see nor does he speak of aught else even to the end of this verse and here endeth the literal meaning of all that i say in this ode addressing these celestial intelligences chapter twelve finally as the text of this comment said above when dividing out the chief parts of this ode i turn me with the face of my discourse to the ode itself and speak to it in an order that this part may be the more fully understood i say that generally in every ode it is called the tornata because the poets who were first used to make it did so in order that when the ode had been sung they should return to it again with a certain part of the air but i seldom made it with this intention and that folk might perceive this i seldom composed it after the arrangement of the ode in point of numbers which is essential to the music but i made it when there was need to say something for the adornment of the ode outside of its own purport as may be seen in this and in the others and therefore i say for the present turn that the excellence and the beauty of every discourse are separate and diverse the one from the other for its excellence lies in its meaning and its beauty in the adornment of the words and both the one and the other give delight although the excellence is most delightsome and so since the excellence of this ode was difficult to perceive because of the diverse persons who are introduced as speaking wherein many divisions are needful and since the beauty was easy to perceive meseemed it was for the behoof of the ode that folk should pay more heed to its beauty than to its excellence and this it is that i declare in this part but inasmuch as it often comes to pass that admonishment seems presumptuous under certain conditions the rhetorician is wont to speak indirectly to a man addressing his words not to him on whose account he is speaking but to another and this method is in fact observed in this instance for the words are addressed to the ode and their purport to men i say then ode i believe that they shall be but rare that is to say few who rightly understand thee and i tell the reason which is twofold first because thy speech is intricate i call it intricate for the reason that has been said and secondly because thy speech is naughty i call it naughty with reference to the strangeness of the meaning now afterwards i admonish it and say if perchance it come about that thou go where are folk who seem to thee to be perplexed by thy discourse be not thou dismayed but say to them since ye perceive not my excellence give heed at least to my beauty for herein i aim at saying naught else as declared above save o men who cannot perceive the meaning of this ode do not therefore reject it but give heed to its beauty which is great both in virtue of syntax which pertains to grammarians and in virtue of the ordering of the discourse which pertains to rhetoricians and by virtue of numbers in its parts which pertains to musicians which thing may be seen to be beautiful in it by him who giveth good heed and this is all the literal meaning of the first ode which is signified by the first served dish spoken of above end of section six